Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. We all know that man-made climate change will bring the world higher temperatures and rising seas. But according to many prominent environmentalists, including leaders of the so-called Extinction Rebellion, climate change will also bring something else, a surge in natural disasters of biblical proportions. As American Democratic Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez puts it, unless we address climate change, the world is going to end in 12 years. My guest today on the Quillette Podcast is Michael Schellenberger, who himself is a longtime environmentalist and environmental policy writer. He was named Time Magazine Hero of the Environment in 2008 and won the Green Book Award in the same year. But Schellenberger isn't making plans for the end of the world just yet. In a new book, in fact, the self-described eco-modernist takes environmentalists, journalists, and scientists to task for linking the reality of global warming to unproven and, as he describes them, irrational fears of Armageddon. Yes, global warming is a serious problem, he concedes, but there is no evidence that the world is now a more dangerous place than it once was. In his new book, entitled Apocalypse Never, Why Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All, he actually shows that human deaths from natural disasters have declined by more than 90% over the last century. His book was recently excerpted on Quillette.com under the headline, Why I Believe Climate Change is Not the End of the World. He spoke to me on Thursday by phone. Here are excerpts from our conversation. Just to be clear, you recognize that global warming and climate change are important issues. You're not a denialist, so to speak. You're just trying to put things in context. Is that right? Yeah. So my view is that climate change is real, but it's not the end of the world. It's not actually our most serious environmental problem. I actually think the trends have gone a lot better on climate change because of the transition from coal to natural gas. And on other measures like human resilience to natural disasters, the news is great. I mean, deaths from natural disasters have declined 90 percent over the last hundred years. I'm actually writing a piece now that is the, the working title is if climate change is making natural disasters worse, why are fewer people being killed by them? And, you know, the answer is just that our ability to just protect ourselves and, and not be swept away in floods and cyclones and, and hurricanes is much is much improved. Well, it's the thing I just mentioned, which is that I think that if you ask people, is climate change making natural disasters worse? The man on the street or the student marching in the street would say, yes, of course, because that's been the story. That's the idea. Um, that's the widespread perception, including among journalists. I, in fact, did a conversation with a Sydney Morning Herald journalist a couple of days ago. I posted it to YouTube where he just couldn't believe that natural disasters weren't getting worse. You know, and I was like, well, how do you how could they be getting worse if fewer people are dying every year? And that's the connection that people aren't making. There's more than one way to measure the impact of natural disasters. And of course, human lives is one. But what about the economic cost? Lost crops, 
forced human migrations, uninhabitable areas of the world, more and more expensive ways to procure water through desalination. You mentioned different things, but just on the big one, which is natural disaster costs, the costs of a hurricane or a flood, and hurricanes and floods, by the way, are overwhelmingly the majority of those costs, or cyclones, which is what we call hurricanes in Asia. The costs have not changed when you normalize them, which is just a way of saying when you account for greater wealth. So if you look at Miami Beach today and you look at Miami Beach 50 years ago, there just wasn't as much property and wealth on Miami Beach for a hurricane to destroy. And so so there's been no change in, in, in costs. There's been a decline in deaths, enormous decline, fabulous decline, wonderful. We should celebrate it. So what other measure would we be looking at to measure disaster? People say it to me all the time on Twitter. They go, well, you're just looking at deaths and costs. And I'm like, well, what are you looking at? And they can't quite say. I find that people don't really know. I mean, one thought would be, well, maybe disasters are getting worse for nature. Maybe they're getting worse for endangered species. But nobody actually says that. No conservation biologist worries about natural disasters hurting his species. That's considered part of the natural process. Often those disruptions create new life. No one's arguing that hurricanes are going to destroy rainforests, in other words. So it really is about deaths and, and, and costs. So then, you, so then you go, well, then how is it that everybody came to believe that disasters were getting worse? And this is where it gets really interesting, which is I've just kind of figured it out after the book came out and after the response to this article, which is that the scientists themselves slip into saying extreme weather events, we can show that there's that there's there's more intense or more frequent extreme weather events, and they point to greater severity of hurricanes, the not frequency, heat waves, and certainly things like fire season, which is just warmer temperatures resulting in, in a longer fire season in places like California, Australia. And that's true. I agree with all of the, that science. It's all totally fine. And there's attribution studies, which look at what are the chances of having had that severe of a hurricane, given how much warmer the planet is, I think those things today are absolutely fine. Those are not disasters, though. Disasters is very specifically defined by the IPCC and all other scientific bodies as the deaths of people and damage to property, because those are the two ways that we measure a disaster. So now I've raised this in private and now publicly with many people for many years, actually, um, and what they immediately people that want to sit, what the people that want to mislead the public into thinking that climate change is resulting in worsening natural disasters, that's the moment that they get mad and they start to go, Michael, you're just trolling or you're you're just making a mountain of a molehill or you're splitting hairs. And it's like, wait a second. This is supposed to be science. And science takes the words it uses extremely seriously because a hurricane is not a disaster if it doesn't kill anybody or destroy any property. A, hur- a large, a big hurricane that never strikes land is not, a, is not a disaster. It's a weather event. It's an extreme event. So I think that this um, has been deliberate. Uh, I'm documenting it. I'm going to show it. I think it's actually very um, uh, unethical. I think it violates basic scientific principles. I think it violates basic principles of science communication. And and we know why they do it, because it increases the saliency of climate change. It makes it easier to argue for funding. It makes it easier to argue for the things they want, renewables, a carbon price, whatever, because they're able to attach some sense of rising deaths, risk, damage to weather events. 
so many people are afraid and they're basically being grossly misinformed. Let's talk about some of that misinformation. I can say from working in a newspaper, one of the reasons that newspaper editors emphasize the connection, I think, between climate change and natural disasters is natural disasters often give the most dramatic photos. So if the IPCC comes out with another report, instead of having a photograph of a bunch of people in front of a microphone, better to illustrate it with a tropical storm or a cyclone or something like that. And so through casual journalistic association and visuals, it gets associated in people's minds. But there's also this rhetoric that you highlight in the book. When people are talking about climate change, they don't just talk about water level increases. More and more, the branding has become extinction. So there is even this thing called the Extinction Rebellion. Uh, What is the effect of that kind of branding? You know, I mean, it's interesting. I criticized much of this last year. I was interviewed by a BBC reporter, and he goes, well, isn't some amount of exaggeration okay or justified or whatever? And I'm like, like literally one out of five British children have nightmares about climate change right now. We know that it's contributing to rising levels of anxiety and depression in adolescence, the overall population. I'm not suggesting it's the main reason, but why in the heck would we be contributing to that? Why would we be misleading people in this way? It's, it's, it's clearly just unethical in itself to do that because it's, a, it's a, an abuse of science. But it's obviously having serious psychological impacts on kids. I interviewed my daughter. My daughter's 14. She's fine. I, I talked to her friends, and they're very scared. And they don't know whether they're going to live long enough to have kids. I mean, the stuff that they've been told is basically nuts. I mean, you just wouldn't allow some person to come up to your child at the park and start saying the things that are said on CNN or New York Times by climate scientists or agronomists or other people who claim some ability. I mean, these guys, there's an agronomist I highlight in the book who basically claims that if the temperature gets to four degrees, which is indeed hot and it's unlikely we'll get there, but it is indeed hot, but that, that we wouldn't be able to produce enough food for half the population. I mean, that's just ridiculous. The Food and Agriculture Organization says even at those temperatures, you will produce much more food as long as you're applying irrigation this picture of a Mad Max apocalypse, there's just nothing in any of the science that supports any of it. Not the food shortages, not even the, I mean, I think the implication with the disasters is that this long decline, 100 years, but also 80% over the last 40 years in deaths is going to reverse itself. But nobody can explain what the mechanism would be for it to reverse itself. Because even if hurricanes became you know, much more intense, let's say 10, 20% more intense, even 50% more intense. There's not any reason to think we couldn't actually survive that and have our deaths go down because it's often based on things like having just better weather reporting and storm shelters and hardened infrastructure. So I think people have a Hollywood apocalyptic view of climate change. And we just, I just felt like it had just gotten out of control and we needed to push back against it. At one point in your piece, which it's an excerpt from your book, you describe this completely over-the-top quotation about the world being destroyed over the next 12 years. You quote a well-known left-wing American congresswoman. Politicians overstate all kinds of issues. Should we really be paying attention to the formulations of progressive politicians who clearly don't understand science that well? Oh, yes, of course. I mean, my... My, my kids respect what Greta Thunberg has to say about the science more than they respect what I have to say. And I'm sorry, but she just doesn't know anything. And I've written a whole book that goes through the science in great detail. 
So these cultural figures are extremely powerful. AOC has seven and a half million followers and people want, are going to want to believe her more than, than somebody like me or some, some other scientists. So yeah, you've got to push back against it. You've got to do that. I don't think the idea that somehow we shouldn't hold the most powerful people in the society accountable for the apocalyptic rhetoric, I don't think is right. I mean, now it, to be fair in that chapter, I actually quote more mainstream people um, criticizing AOC, but then I go on and I note how th- how those same people are the people then that perpetuate the idea that that climate change is making disasters worse. So, so the real big prey in this book is definitely not AOC. I mean, as you know, I mean, this book is going after not even the big prey is not even a person. It's really, I think, something in us that needs to believe in some higher power and some transcendence and some immortality and an afterlife. Basically, our need for a religion, which is motivating so much of this apocalypse talk, I think is what's what I'm really trying to get at in the book. This episode of the Quillette podcast is brought to you by Gatsby, an options trading mobile platform that doesn't charge any trade commissions or per-contract fees. Listeners who regularly invest in the stock market may think that options trading has to be complicated, but Gatsby makes trading options beautifully simple. Customers can even earn rewards points with every trade and redeem them for gift cards. Are you looking to make money when the stock market dips? Do you have an increased appetite for investment risk? By investing in options, you can implement investing strategies either for or against any public company or ETF. You can gain more leverage than through direct stock investment. And there's even a social component because you can use Gatsby's network function to follow your friends to see what they're trading on. Last month on Gatsby, people traded on Tesla, Slack, Delta Airlines, Carnival Cruise, Zoom, and Spy. Like the namesake character in F. Scott Fitzgerald's famous 1925 novel, Jay Gatsby, options traders have an extraordinary gift for hope. But it's important to remember that options trading is risky by nature, and you can lose all your invested capital. Securities are offered through View Trade Securities Inc. See trygatsby.com for a full list of disclosures and the complete fee schedule. Take advantage of our special offer just for Quillette listeners and get your first 2,000 rewards points on us by going to trygatsby.com slash Quillette. That's T-R-Y-G-A-T-S-B-Y dot com slash Q-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E. And now back to our podcast. You talk about going to Congo and seeing a lot of the challenges that people in sub-Saharan Africa are facing. Explain to listeners why that's an interesting vantage point for understanding the scale of the harm that climate change can do to human civilization. Yeah, I really wanted to humanize the story. I mean, I dedicated the book to my kids who are 14 and 21. So I definitely had like, I knew I wanted this to be a book that kids could read. So I wanted to tell human stories. You know, environmental writing in general, I think is pretty terrible. It's it's often doesn't have human stories. And, and when it does, it's often like a field biologist or something or a guy in his lab or something super boring. So that's not what the environment's about. You know, the environment is this, we refer to this, this thing called the environment as this place. We, we get our resources and food and energy from it. And we also, in many instances, want to save it. And so what's that, what's going on there? And it's just a lot bloodier and more interesting than the National Geographic kind of stories that we've been told. So 
I want to take us there right away. And so in the first chapter, you know, we go through the really apocalyptic statements that people like AOC make. We debunk them a bit and we kind of go through the science showing just how this is a climate change is clearly a manageable problem. This is not a catastrophic problem. And that if you want to see a catastrophic problem or you want to see what I call the end of the world, then you should go to the Congo with the Democratic Republic of the Congo. It's one of the poorest, certainly one of the most violent countries in the world. It's had two civil wars that resulted in millions of people getting killed, depending on how you measure it. It's also where you have some of the highest biodiversity in the world. It's where the really amazing mountain gorillas are. So I wanted to go there, but I did a slightly different thing than most environmental journalists do, which is that I actually interviewed the people around this park this spectacular park where, you know, where Leonardo DiCaprio flies in a plane over the safaris and the elephants and the gorillas and the whole thing, right? It's amazing. But if you interview the people around the park, these are people just barely surviving. You know, they're like, here's this, you know, white guys clearly here for the nature, not, you know, for us. And I would just talk to them about what was going on in their lives. I always ask very open-ended questions and the thing that everybody complained about was that the wild animals were escaping the park and eating their food. And when they eat your, and not just, you know, breaking into your house, I'm saying like they were eating the crops. And when you're a small farmer, subsistence farmer, and wild animals eat your crops, that can be just devastating. I mean, people's lives can be ruined. I, one woman, you know, had a heart attack the night uh, after the elephants ate all of her food. And I met this, was this really interesting woman, Bernadette. Uh, who had just had her sweet potatoes eaten by baboons. And so we spent some time and I interviewed her. And so she becomes kind of one of the heroines of Apocalypse Never. She runs through a lot of the chapters. And I'm I'm basically showing how climate change is like the literally last thing in the world she needs to worry about. It's certainly the last, it certainly should not be a priority for the government of the Congo. What What she needs is basic electricity, flood control, roads, agricultural modernization. They need industrialization so they can have cities and she can be liberated from this, you know, this basically completely sad, violent environment. Because I felt like so much of this discourse is just such a first, it's just such a first world entitled children's discourse. You know, the big sky monsters are coming and we're going to go protect the world's children from the climate monsters, because that's what really threatens them. And it's like so disconnected from people's lives. When you said that this woman's sweet potatoes had been eaten by baboons, we talk about first world problems. That farmer is facing, I think, the opposite of a first world problem. But it does help put things in perspective. I want to bring it back to the way we deal with climate change, because one of your arguments is that wealthy societies and Africa itself could be a much wealthier society in coming decades, that they can abate the effects of climate change. And you talk, for instance, in your excerpt about Netherlands. You said, well, Netherlands had horrible problems with flooding. Within living memory, there has been flooding in Netherlands that killed thousands of people. And they built this multi-billion dollar system of dams and dikes that have managed the problem, state-of-the-art system. Let's take a look at a place like Florida is, is under siege from rising sea levels. And there are many expensive coastal properties in Florida that you actually walk on the grass and it's waterlogged because of rising sea levels. 
Florida is not Netherlands. And we've seen with COVID-19 that America is only a semi-functional society now, committed to low taxes, huge deficit in public infrastructure, huge political divisions. And it's very questionable whether the United States, with all its resources, could invest enough to do the kind of public works that even a small country like Netherlands is capable of. Yeah, so eventually they will have to make a decision about whether or not those properties are valuable enough to protect or whether people should go. And I, I honestly, I kind of go in terms of like problems in the world, that strikes me as actually so far from a high priority, I can't even begin to tell you. That's like a first, that is talk about a first world problem, wealthy communities or even middle class or working class ones. I'm just kind of like, I, I, I honestly, I can't even work up, I can't even, I, I've, at various points, I've kind of read articles on it and you kind of talk to people and I keep being like, you know, how is this even like a national problem? I mean, I certainly don't want to subsidize the insurance of that stuff. If they want to, if they can get insurance for it and, and, and the markets are functioning properly, then it's either going to be economical to live there or not, but kind of grow up. I mean, we've got 10,000 people living on the street of San Francisco that are severe, that many of which are severely mentally ill doing methamphetamine and heroin every day. Social media appears to be making everybody slightly insane in some ways that we're barely understanding. I, I kind of go sea level rise in Florida, really. I'm not even concerned. I'm not even concerned about sea level rise in Bangladesh. You know, the scenarios you look at, I, mean, I interviewed the lead author of the IPCC report on this, someone who was quoted saying sea level rise was unmanageable. And I got him to acknowledge in the interview that what he meant by that is that some people might get killed in some accident like it happened in the Netherlands in the 50s, you know, or in Katrina, or that there'd be some retreat from the coast. And I'm kind of like, how is that unmanageable? I mean, unmanageable makes it sound like there's just chaos and anarchy, like in those, <laughs> those autonomous zones, you know, or something like that, or something apocalyptic, but that's not what they're, anybody's describing. Some people who are familiar with this debate will be familiar with the works of Bjorn Lomborg, who is from Denmark, and he's a statistician who has weighed in with several books on this subject. His thesis was always that, okay, climate change is an issue, but he used quantitative methods to look at where the best investment would save the greatest number of lives. And if I remember correctly, he showed that fairly simple technologies can help save millions of lives in case of malaria, AIDS, other infectious diseases. Is your argument similar in some ways to that? Is it a utilitarian argument based on how we can best invest public resources to save human lives? Well, let me tell you why I don't do that kind of analysis and or make those kinds of statements, even though I am very appreciative of Bjorn in many, many ways and respect him um, very much. Uh, but I don't do that kind of thing. And I'll tell you why. Um, there's too many assumptions that are being made and too many separate analyses that are being made to come up with statements like better to invest a billion dollars in immunization and climate change. Well, what do you mean by climate change? You know, are you talking about like building renewable, like wind farms or is it nuclear plants? Because they're two completely different things as I go through in my book. Or, you know, he even does stuff I don't like. I don't agree with. He'll say things like, and, and it becomes very popular, of course, in the first world to be like, we should stop these subsidies for fossil fuel companies. That's always terrible. Well, okay, but actually, some when you really look at it, some of those fossil fuel subsidies are, say, 
the Indian government subsidizing the use of liquefied petroleum gas, which is basically natural gas that we use, that all of us use and take for granted and consider our birthrights. The Indian government subsidized that for its very, very poor citizens who can't afford it. And there's studies showing that in the Himalayas, when they did that, the forests grew back because they didn't have to use wood as fuel. So even on that stuff, I kind of go, in my book, what I've done is I'm taking a much more physical look at this stuff. You know, it's like, let me explain why the difference between having a flood control system like I have in my Berkeley Hills, where the water rushes down the hill and it's channeled through culverts and gutters and never gets near my house versus Bernadette's house. who There are homes that are sometimes have water in them. They're flooded so bad. The difference between those two things is not because of climate change. It's not because climate change increased precipitation by two inches. It's because I have a flood control system and she doesn't, right? So I wanted, I wanted to do a book that unpacked these things because I think that often the stuff with Bjorn and the, the economists and the academics are kind of like, hey, hey, trust us, we've got these models. And yeah, yeah, we're making reasonable assumptions, but you don't get to see the assumptions. Whereas I want people to actually see, to, I, want, I want like my, my daughter's friends to understand that like the differences of you know, flooding and, and drought and forest fires and whatever is different when you are Bernadette or the character who is the in Indonesia kind of more working class character for the book than it is for, for them and that they live in these situations of incredible privilege that protect them. And if they really care about those folks in poor countries, then we ought to be prioritizing things like buying clothes that are made at, at factories that employ these women and liberate them from farm life. Because I think that anyway, so that's my that's my view of it. I think there's too many assumptions and models and and that's just not i think what people need right now so i'm speaking to you from toronto in the canadian province of ontario and i have my electric car plugged in in the driveway and it's taking electricity from our transmission grid which i think is something like 97 percent either nuclear or hydro or other renewables is that the future for most Western countries where you talk about the shift from coal to natural gas? Do you think there's going to be a further shift toward either all zero emissions such as nuclear? Or do you think that the pushback, particularly against nuclear, is going to keep us addicted to fossil fuels in regard to our transmission grids? Because I know that you yourself, you've written in support of nuclear power. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm basically a pro-nuclear environmental activist. I mean, that's kind of my day job. In fact, I wrote the book in service of that mission to, and it was actually originally, I had a book about how humans save nature and it, was, it just was too boring. You know, there wasn't any. <laughs> Destroying things is exciting, uh, but saving things is boring. Yeah, yeah. So I set it aside. I then became involved in trying to save nuclear plants from shutting down early in part for climate change, so not exclusively and then I wrote a book about nuclear and nobody really wanted it. And so long story short, the two books combined and that's what Apocalypse Never Became. So nuclear is one of the most important technologies in the world. It's certainly the most dangerous. It has this incredible dual use for weapons and for energy. And that's at the heart of the continuing problems for nuclear, or rather that's the main reason why it doesn't scale up, I think along with really the manipulation of those fears among people that are dark green, Malthus what I call the Malthusian environmentalists. 
Yeah, although I would say nuclear scales up here in Canada. We, my province, I think 60% of the grid is can-do nuclear technology. It's basically zero emission, but now it's become impossible, especially after Fukushima. Can nuclear power ever make a big comeback? There's no technical obstacle. There's no economic obstacle. Um, you know, there's a lot of fuss made about various aspects of it, but as you've proven in Canada, as France has shown, Sweden, even the United States, is that when you want to build nuclear cheaply, you just make sure that the cost of capital is relatively low. And the way that you do that is by standardizing and building the same kind of reactor over and over again. That's the only thing that we know to bring down costs. Why don't we do that? Well, that's the story I go through in Apocalypse Never. I mean, it's a really amazing, dramatic story. It has to do with fear of the bomb. It has to do with the fact that nuclear is a threat to all other energy sources because it raises issues of why why would you burn coal? Why would you burn natural gas? Why would you use renewables when you can use nuclear, which on every single environmental and social measure is superior to its alternatives? So there's obviously a lot of financial interests that have that have always gone after nuclear. There's also this Malthusian anti-growth, anti, you know, really anti-capitalist, anti-modern view, which is that, you know, we shouldn't have a high energy society. We should have a low energy society. And nuclear is just this incredibly high energy power source. The more worried you about climate change, the more you should be out there evangelizing and moralizing for nuclear, because that's the main event. Once everything is 100% nuclear, there's not a climate change problem to worry about. There's not an air pollution problem to worry about. Frankly, you've completely dematerialized your energy system. Yeah, there's enlightened pockets like Ontario. But for the most part, you know, you go anywhere in California or you go where I'm in Berkeley and you tell people nuclear, they go, oh, God, just the word. They'll say that. They'll go, the word, I don't know the word. And I'm like, it's not the word. I don't think that's bothering you. You know, it's that you associate the word with the with the apocalypse, with nuclear war, with the, all of the things you hate. I mean, people, the interesting thing I look at is why people think nuclear is dirty. Well, it's not, it's not because it is dirty. It's the cleanest on every single environmental metric. It's the cleanest. So why do people think it's dirty? What they're saying is they think it's un- immoral. And so the way we call someone dirty, a dirty deed, you know, you're saying that it violates the moral code. And, and that's very, very deep with nuclear. So I've always felt like it required a pretty significant change of consciousness. Somehow the Canadians got there, but even now the French are incredible. The French public are incredibly anti-nuclear, you know, despite having 75% of their electricity from it. And now a message from our commercial supporters at BetterHelp, the online counseling service that helps people everywhere become happier and more productive. At BetterHelp.com, you'll connect with your professional licensed therapist in a safe, private, online environment according to your own schedule, using secure video, phone, online chat, or text. Anything you share is, of course, strictly confidential. While BetterHelp isn't a crisis line, new clients can start communicating with their counselor in under 24 hours. When self-help methods aren't enough and you seek professional counseling, BetterHelp can connect you to a network of thousands of licensed therapists. And you can switch therapists to make sure you get the right fit. Licensed counselors include specialists in sleep, trauma, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, and self-esteem. So many people are using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 U.S. states. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling, 
there's no awkward waiting room, and you can message your BetterHelp counselor at any time. Financial aid is available in some cases. Join over 1 million others who are taking charge of their mental health by visiting betterhelp.com. Quillette listeners get 10% off their first month service with the discount code Quillette. Just go to betterhelp.com slash Quillette. And now, back to our podcast. Lest anyone think that you're one of these heartless conservatives that Quillette is accused of platforming, you wrote in an account of your early life, At 17, I lived in Nicaragua to show solidarity with the Sandinista Socialist Revolution. At 23, I raised money for Guatemalan women's cooperatives. In my early 20s, I lived in the semi-Amazon doing research with small farmers fighting land invasions. You talked about the dark green environmentalist movement. You're obviously someone who, who saw this close up. Do you still have friends and colleagues from that period who you can still communicate with in a polite collegial way? I moved out to California after college and worked at this kind of radical left-wing group called Global Exchange. And we did the, I mentioned the book, we did a campaign against Nike for its factory conditions in Asia. And I was very anti-imperialist and socialist. And we went to Cuba. I didn't even mention that in the book. I went to Cuba. I didn't even get in there. There's so much left-wing history there. And, um, you know, yeah, I still, I still get along with those guys pretty well. I, I, saw, I saw the head of the former, the founder of Global Exchange recently. So, yeah, th- those guys and us talk. I mean, I definitely falling out with, with some colleagues on some things. You know, I used to really be friendly and friends with the head of the Sierra Club, who's almost like the exact same age as me and very nice guy, you know, very sweet family. But when your friend is on CNN attacking you, it's hard to stay friends. And you must get trolled a lot. I, some of my favorite writers are the ones who get trolled from right and left alike. And I'm guessing, I'm guessing you get trolled from conservatives who take you to task even for taking the science of global warming seriously. Is that the case? I basically decided I'm not going to be trolled. Um, I haven't really in the past either. You know, like I had a conversation. You have to be careful, of course, to identify when somebody is truly trolling you and when they're just asking pretty reasonable questions, but maybe in a slightly dickish way, right? Like, so I had a guy last night who was asking me about my claim, which I was saying that, that this Biden-Sanders climate agenda would effectively kill nuclear, you know, and it was kind of like, go on and on. I was finally like, look, dude, I just wrote like a whole book on this. Go read the book. And if they just keep being trolls, I'll just end up blocking them. There's no point because like, I actually want my daughter to read my Twitter feed and not be scrolling down and having like crazy people making lies about me or just trolling me endlessly. So I'm not into it. I mean, I'm kind of like, at this point with social media too, I'm like, if you really have something significant to say, then you'll publish it somewhere and you'll tweet it and I'll respond and we'll have it refer back to the publication. But there's, I feel like some better balance coming from just being like, look, I put a piece in Quillette, you put a piece in climate feedback. I responded to your piece in climate feedback. You can see it, but this thing of this kind of, uh, for me, one of the most wonderful benefits of writing that book was actually getting off social media and writing stuff down. I see so many people on social media these days who I'm like, man, you're on social, you're on Twitter too much. You got to get off and write something substantive for, for it to be taken seriously. Get off social media and engage in substantive research and writing. Crazy talk from Michael Schellenberger. You can read his article on Quillette, which is an excerpt from his forthcoming book, 
Mr. Schellenberger, thank you so much for being on the Quillette podcast. Thanks for having me, John. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.